We'll come to the time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from the Bible. I'll talk about what it means, why this matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9? Ecclesiastes chapter 9, it's on page 476 if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. If you have your own Bible and you're looking for it, if you find Psalms right in the middle, just keep going right. You'll hit Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, and when you found that, would you stand together with me? We'll read our passage this morning. Solomon writes this, So I reflected on all this, and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lying, for the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this vapor-like life that God has given you under the sun, all of your breath-like days. For this is your lot in life, and in, in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there was neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come, as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare. So men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Happy Mother's Day. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. (laughs) Ask God's blessing on this time in His Word. Spirit of God, we ask you to meet with us here this morning as we talk through this part of your Word. We believe this is a living Word. This is not some ancient document written centuries ago, but because your Spirit inspired each man who wrote these different books and letters and all these different things that we have here, we believe that your Spirit can speak to us in the same way today. And I believe in that you have a purpose that you want to accomplish in each one of us today. You tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent. 
Well, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us here today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. I don't know about you, but I personally hate being wrong. I don't like it. And my guess is I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say that most of us would share that same sentiment. I don't know anyone in here who would be like, no, 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 I love it when people point out how I'm wrong. That's definitely me. I don't think that's you. Now, maybe more of you are just more mature than this, but I'm going to guess that some of you in here can still also identify with the way that I hate being wrong so much that even when it's clearly, clearly pointed out that I'm wrong, I'm clearly shown to be wrong, I I still continue to argue the point. Over and over again, I'm testing people. I'm like, oh, are you sure? Are you really sure? You're not you're sure there's no way you could be wrong. Theorizing, like, you know, what if our roles were set were different? We switched around. You're still telling me that's true? Even scorning the other person. You know what? The way you showed me I was wrong, you were such a jerk that now I reject what you said. Because if you said it to me nicely, maybe, but no, I'm not taking it now. Whatever it is, just over and over again, pressing, trying to find any little crack of wrongness so that I can at least be partly right. I can't even tell you how many disagreements I've had with my wife or my family that that have gone on days longer than they needed to if I would have just been willing to admit that I was wrong and just move on. Anybody else? I mean, am I alone in this right now? Come on. Thank you. A couple of honest people here. Or maybe you've seen this uh, video on YouTube with this little toddler who grabs an onion from the mom's thing and thinks it's an apple. And the mom says, oh, don't eat that. That's an onion. It's not an apple. And the three-year-old is like, no, it's an apple. And he takes a huge bite of it. And like, it's obvious right in that moment. Okay, it's clearly an onion. He's crying, coughing, grimacing. But totally unwilling to admit that he was wrong, the kid just keeps biting. It's an apple. Ah. Can't, can't just admit, okay, it's an onion. What's going on there? Why, why do we do that? Why is it such a big deal to us that someone else could be right about something? That they could have a better plan at us? That they would know more about a particular subject than we do? Well, it's not everything, but my guess is, I think one big reason could be that when we are shown where we are wrong at some deeper level, it tears the illusion of power and control out of our hands and puts it in that person who was right. It puts it in their hands. And let's just be honest, for the majority of us, even at three years of age, we do not like surrendering power to anyone. We don't like it. My guess is from from the meekest person in here this morning to the proudest, I think all of us, to one level or another, have some version of William Henley's Invictus playing in our heads just on repeat over and over again. We're telling ourselves it matters not how straight the gates, how filled with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And yet, as I was thinking about this over this past week, as this relates to our passage in Ecclesiastes 9, it occurred to me that this very same power struggle is as old as humanity itself. 
In the opening chapters of Genesis, if you know that story, there God puts Adam in the garden and he tells him, you can eat from any tree in the garden except one, warning him that on the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And yet, at some point later, we don't know when, the serpent comes to Adam and his wife Eve with the most tantalizing of lies, saying what? You will not surely die. You will be like God. Just, just imagine that opportunity in front of you. An opportunity to prove God wrong and take power from Him. Now sadly, they believe that lie and they eat what was forbidden from them. And what's the result? Essentially, God comes to them one day and says, you were wrong to doubt me and trust the serpent. Look, look, now your, your disobedience has not made you like me, has it? And now to always remind you that you're not like me, now you and everyone after you will surely experience death. Now, yes, that, that's, that's awful. That's terrible. That is the sad reality that every one of us experiences. But it's also clear, right? It's clear. I mean, if, if, you would think there could not be a more clear evidence ever that Adam and Eve were wrong and God was right. Why? Because everybody since them has died. We, we all eventually die. And yet, it's here. It's, it's right here. This is where that same pattern I was talking about earlier keeps showing up, where even though it's clearly been shown that we were wrong, we still keep wanting to argue the point, still keep pushing, still keep testing, now with the God of the universe, testing him in every way possible and willing to just submit and acknowledge that he was right and we were wrong. Maybe we try to like ignore God or explain him away. Maybe we do it that way. Other times, we do it by trying to obey everything we think God wants us to do. But regardless, the goal is still the same. We want to tip the balance of power back towards us and prove God to be wrong. Continuing in our series this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes called Chasing After the Wind. From the beginning here, we've been following Solomon as he tests this thesis that he began the book with, namely that everything we see, feel, touch in this natural world under the sun is Hebel. This Hebrew word translated here is meaningless, but literally translated means mist, vapor, breath. And for some of you, you'll be very excited to hear that our passage today in chapter 9 is something of a hinge chapter where Solomon now begins to draw some of his final conclusions about everything he spent a lifetime testing. It means we're close to the end. We're almost there. And the conclusion that Solomon brings to us this morning is simply this. God was right. God was right, and Adam and Eve were wrong. And the sooner that we can just admit that he was right and stop trying to ignore or avoid the reality of death that we all now face, the sooner we can get on to just enjoying the gift of life that he's given us under the sun. And in order to see how he impacts that conclusion, I want to look at our passage this morning in just three ways. Solomon's going to show us that death is unavoidable. 
Death is unpredictable. And finally, death is life's greatest teacher. Death is unavoidable, unpredictable, and it's life's greatest teacher. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to Ecclesiastes 9? Follow along with me. We can work through this conclusion together. Let's look at Solomon's first conclusion. Death is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Look at me at verse 1 here. Solomon says at the beginning, So I reflected on all this, and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and all that they do are in God's hands. Now Solomon has been kind of chipping away at this all through Ecclesiastes, but now he's really just trying to drive this point home, and so he states it just matter-of-factly. He's saying that those who seem to be righteous in this life under the sun, those who seem to be wise and everything that they do, it's all in God's hands. He, he's the one running the show, not us. He's saying, this is what I've concluded. He's the one running the show, not us. Which could absolutely be a, a comforting truth to us if we also knew that God was favorably disposed towards us. But you see, he goes on in the second half of verse 1 to say... But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. Now, given everything that Solomon says in our passage about life and death, I think it's pretty clear that by what awaits him, he means what awaits him when he dies. But you need to know that whenever the Bible talks about God loving or hating something, uh, very often it's referring to God's acceptance or rejection of, of something, some person. So an example of that would be Isaac's two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, There we read about how God favored. He chose the younger son, Jacob, and he did not favor the older son, Esau. And the way that the Bible describes that is with this language, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So what Solomon is getting at here is that, yes, all of our lives are in God's hands, but when our lives come to an end, we can't know whether we'll experience God's acceptance or his rejection, his, his favor, or his wrath. Which, if you're like me, sounds contrary to what you'd expect from the Bible, doesn't it? It makes it sound like at the end of our lives, God's acceptance or rejection of us is just it's a coin toss. It's a roll of the dice, 50-50, let's see what you get. We all hope it's acceptance, but you know who knows? But... I think what Solomon is saying here makes a lot more sense when we understand two things. First of all, from the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has made it clear. He is only seeking to describe life as we experience it under the sun. Under the sun. That's the phrase he keeps repeating all through the book, which means essentially it's just life as we see it with the naked eye. Just what we can see looking around. Derek Kidner in his commentary on this, this passage says it this way. We have only to use our eyes without prejudice, according to Psalm 19, Romans 1, 19, to see that there is a powerful and glorious creator. Fine. But it takes more than observation to discover how he is disposed towards us. So from what we can observe alone, it's impossible to know how God is disposed towards us. And secondly, the reason Solomon says it's impossible to know that. It's because of what he goes on to say in verse 2. Look with me there. He says, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. So 
He's saying the reason we can't know whether God's acceptance or rejection awaits us by mere observation is because everybody dies. And there doesn't seem to be anything you can do to change that reality, to make it not true, to deliver us from that destiny. So sure, a wicked person dies. We don't really question that, but the righteous person too. A bad person dies. We don't really think anything of that, but a good person too. And he just keeps going on with this list, thing after thing. But by the end, it's no surprise at all in verse 3 to see Solomon, the conclusion he comes to is he describes this reality as the evil in everything that happens under the sun. If you transfer that same reality today, I don't think we'd describe it too much differently, would we? I mean, Osama bin Laden, he, he orchestrates the terrorist attacks of 9-11, we, we celebrate when the Navy SEALs go and take him out. But a crowd enjoying a concert, getting gunned down by someone from their hotel room? A Nazi war criminal hiding out in some retirement home dies, and we're undisturbed by that. But a godly woman who served on the mission field and then the rest of her life sought to lead her family and her children to know and love Jesus. A grandparent gradually deteriorates and then one night passes in their sleep and we say, that, that's the way life goes. But a four-year-old boy with a brain tumor that used to sit in that back pew there with his mom and dad, Like Solomon, from, from our finite viewpoint under the sun, we don't know how else to describe it, but evil. It's wrong. It's not right that they all share the same destiny. But, given everything that we said as we began this morning, we must not fail to recognize that what Solomon is ultimately getting at here is not at all that there aren't unjust ways that people die, only that everybody does. Everybody does. Death is unavoidable, says Solomon. And although we might, it might look like evil to us as we live out our days under the sun, the fact remains the warning God gave to Adam all the way back in the garden was right. And no amount of uh, good behavior, uh, religious devotion, swearing of oaths will tip the balance and make God wrong. Think about that. Did you know that obedience to God can be just as much a way of trying to prove Him wrong as trying to explain God away and ignore death's reality? It can be just as much trying to prove Him wrong. And whether you're a Christian or not here this morning, you better know that going in. Or you will seek to follow God for all the wrong reasons and then curse Him and walk away from Him when your obedience to Him still doesn't change the unavoidable outcome, either for you or for those you love. So that's Solomon's first conclusion. Death is unavoidable. We don't tip the balance by our obedience to him. We don't change the outcome. The next conclusion is this. Death is unpredictable. Death is unpredictable. Look with me now at the end of our passage. 
scoots to the end here in verses 11 and 12. He says, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Now, Solomon is just kind of reiterating the same theme he just finished describing, showing us the unavoidable nature of death. But I think here what he's highlighting more is the unpredictability of death, that that it comes unexpectedly. It's not something we can plan for. When you consider the examples he offers there in verse 11, look at verse 11, there are these contrasting examples. I, I think it makes sense why he described the seeming randomness of life and death as being guided by no more than time and chance. Because that's what it looks like. He says, yeah, time and chance happen to them all. Now again, if you, if you grew up in church for any length of time, that language sounds strange to our ears. We're like, whoa, really? You're saying just time and chance? It feels, again, like we've gone back to the coin toss, and you know our, our life and death, they, they aren't in anyone's hands. But again, remember... Solomon is only describing life as we experience it under the sun, as we look around at the natural world. And understanding that, I think we can see more clearly what Solomon is getting at here in these last two verses. So again, those examples in verse 11, race not to the swift, battle not to the strong. When you think of those situations, aren't they all things that we would expect, just natural, statistically probable outcomes to? All of them. Oh, oh, the fastest runner in the Olympics. Of course he's going to win the gold medal. The, the most technologically advanced military. Of course they're going to win the war. Valedictorian of your graduating class. Of course they're going to go on to become wealthy and famous. And yet Solomon's difficult truth that he points to here is, yeah, maybe they will. But not always. Not always which is the reason why there are so often so many surprises at your high school reunions and why casino owners are some of the wealthiest people you know. Because something may absolutely be statistically probable, sure, but there are a thousand different variables that can make those statistics now useless when it comes to finding out what the probable outcome is. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter anymore. And it's not by chance at all that casinos... And racetracks long ago coined the phrase, the house always wins in the end. Why? Because more often than not, it's the variables that win the day. And the point Solomon wants us to see as he applies this same principle to our death in verse 12 is that if we can't even predict these things in life that should be mathematically, scientifically probable, that we should be able to predict, what makes us think we can have any control or any measure of control over the day of our death. Think about it time and time again. Death doesn't come when we think it should. That happens all the time. And there are far too many painful examples of times when death did come when we didn't think it should. We didn't want it to come. In the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother James applies Solomon's conclusion this way. He says, Come now, you who say 
Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. You are Habel. A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Death is completely unpredictable to all but the one who holds our times in his hands, says Solomon. And just as we can't use religion to tip the scales of power in our favor, neither can we use science or logic to prove wrong what God has said is true. So we're seeing that death is unpredictable, death is unavoidable, the last conclusion Solomon has for us, surprisingly, is much more positive than the other two. Finally, he wants to show us that death is life's greatest teacher. Death is life's greatest teacher. Sandwiched between these two more bleak realities, Solomon brings us a profound and beautiful truth, and we see it in verse 4. Look with me there. Anyone who is among the living has hope. I don't know about you, but for me, with everything Solomon's been saying so far this morning, that one sentence feels like coming up for air after swimming to the bottom of a deep pool. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Now, sure, if you look at the second half of verse 4, Solomon's example there pretty much wrecks the moment as fast as he makes it. He's saying, uh, even a live dog is better off than a dead lion, which, if you're like me, leaves most of us saying, sorry, what? What? This is the most awkward example. Solomon here feels like Johnny Depp playing Willy Wonka in Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, just the most awkward guy ever. He's trying to act normal, but you can tell he hasn't actually talked to another human being in a couple of years. This feels like that. It feels like Solomon hasn't been out of the castle in a while and hasn't talked to people. This example seems weird. Now, I want to be careful as we talk about this because this is Vancouver, and I know that here in this city, a dog for many people is much more than a pet. Okay, it's a legit family member. It eats at the table with you. It's got a wardrobe of like casual and more dressy outfits, and it's got a cell phone plan and a YouTube page. I get it. I'm not trying to step on any toes here. But you need to know that in Solomon's day, Dogs were not a domesticated animal like we have today. Okay, they were dangerous, dirty scavengers, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of like sewer rats or jackals. Okay, so his comparison here, like we've seen all through the book, it really is two opposite extremes. He's got a powerful, majestic animal like a lion and the lowest, most despised animal of the day, which would have been a dog. But why? Why is a living dog better off? Why does anyone who is among the living have hope? We see it in verse 5. Look with me there. He says, For the living know that they will die. That's the hope we have. We know that we'll die. Earlier in chapter 7, verse 2, Solomon said it this way, For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. We should think on that. We should Ponder that reality deeply every day. 
And if you look at everything Solomon goes on to say there in the rest of verse 5 and into verse 6, it all has to do with these, the ways that the dead, they, they no longer know anything. They don't have that knowledge. They are forgotten. And he also says, they never again have any part in anything that happens under the sun. Now, put a post-it note there because that's important. It means what Solomon is trying to show us is that the knowledge of our death, rather than being something to be feared, to be outrun, can actually teach us something truly beautiful about how to live our lives now in the present. Or just to continue with the same thought that we've been considering this morning. When we finally stop resisting God, when we finally stop fighting and pushing back against this truth that death is unavoidable and unpredictable, we find that even the poorest, most underprivileged among us can still have hope during their days under the sun that God has given them. What is that hope that we can presently enjoy when we acknowledge this reality of our death? We see it in the next verses, 7 through 10. Look, he says, Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Now maybe you read a list like that and you think, yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I, yeah, I, I like all those things, eating, Enjoy my wife? Yeah, that's, that sounds good. I, I, I like those things. But none of them sound really that awesome, really transforming. They don't sound really hopeful to us. But what I would like to submit to you is that the reason that they sound so ordinary and they sound so everyday is because they have not yet been unlocked with the key of verse 5. Think about it. For that person that knows that deeply considers the fact that life is temporary, death is unavoidable, that meal among friends, good glass of wine, is a cherished event that they have no promise of ever repeating. You you appreciate it differently when you have that knowledge of death. Uh, The person who knows, considers that life is temporary and unpredictable, waking up beside your spouse to enjoy another day with them, going to work at that job you love for another day. All those things are a gift to be treasured now that we have no promise of repeating tomorrow. It changes the way we see the ordinary. It changes the way we see the everyday when we come with the knowledge that one day it will end. And listen, don't be fooled. Don't get tricked because if you've been in church, if you grew up in church, if you've been a Christian for a while, it can all be, be all too easy to look at a list like this and kind of look down your nose at it, almost be like lamenting the fact that he doesn't seem to talk about anything that, you know, super spiritual or, or you know, he's talking about these everyday earthly experiences, not lofty pursuits. He doesn't even mention the afterlife. But I love what David Gibson says of such thinking in his book on Ecclesiastes. He writes this, When God made the world, he made it good. 
And no amount of being a Christian or being spiritual ever changes the fact that God puts you in a physical world with hands, with food and drink and culture and relationships and beauty. Sin fractures and distorts everything so we can no longer understand everything, but neither does sin uncreate everything. Don't you see, when you live out your days under the sun like this, acknowledging the reality of death, death is no longer a problem to be solved or an argument to be won. It becomes life's greatest teacher. And all the effort that we once gave to resisting that truth of death can now be used instead for hopeful living in this present life under the sun as a gift from God's hand, even as we expectantly wait for our future with him in the next. It's his good gift to us now, all these things. And we enjoy them and see them so much differently when we look at them through the lens that one day they'll be gone. When we began this series months ago, I offered you a picture from Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Christmas Carol. There, a bitter, miserly Ebenezer Scrooge is utterly transformed in how he lives out his remaining days under the sun in a single night, not by a picture of the past or even a troubling view of the present, but by ultimately a devastatingly truthful picture of a future that awaits us all. The unavoidable, unpredictable death that's coming. Past and the present, those things moved him when he saw them. But it was only his inevitable death in the future that had sufficient power to radically transform him from the way he was living then to the way he was living the next morning. And I believe Solomon's words to us today are meant to bring about that exact same kind of transformation in the hearts of lives of us who hear them today. Maybe you're here today and you don't yet have a saving relationship with Jesus. I think there's still benefit in what Solomon has said here for you. Because all of us have heard this idea. When when I found out I got that diagnosis, when I found out this was happening, I started to appreciate life so much more. That's true. And yet, I I would honestly ask you to consider the, the deeper, superior, more eternal benefit that comes from being in a relationship with the one who holds our times in his hands. So much more than even just what we can experience in this life. But if you do know Jesus, if you do know him, I think we have an even greater responsibility for how we respond to what Solomon says here. Because for us, we know the unavoidable, unpredictable nature of death, once so frightening and intimidating, has now been utterly transformed in the death of Jesus. That changes everything now. The prophet Isaiah, as well as the Apostle Paul, described what Jesus did in his substitutionary death on the cross and then his resurrection as swallowing up death in victory. It's swallowed up now. Which, listen, that doesn't at all mean that death no longer affects us, that we're just unmoved by death any longer. No, that's not what I'm saying. Absolutely we are. Death hurts. It stings. It, it steals. And we're right to grieve its effects. But if God would send Jesus to die in our place and then raise him back to life, forever securing our own resurrection when we put our faith in him, 
It simply means, as Paul says elsewhere, that we no longer grieve now as those who have no hope. In fact, for the believer in Jesus in the face of death, we ought to be some of the most hopeful people of all. Why? We're living our days under the sun, yes, but when we raise our eyes above the sun and look to Jesus, now we can know what awaits us in the end. Now we do know for all time that the way God is disposed towards his creation is love. It's love. Let's pray. I'd ask those of you, if you're helping me serve communion, if you'd come forward at this time. Father, we praise you for this truth that you revealed to us this morning. It's a reality that, although it is plainly true, we find or try to find all kinds of different ways to get around, to shift, to alter, because it's a hard reality. It's a scary reality. We don't like surrendering that power, that illusion of control. Would you forgive us? Praise you that in Jesus, you have utterly transformed death so that those who trust in you for their salvation no longer need fear death any longer. And the reality of death now even helps us to enjoy this life, this gift of life now, so much more deeply, so much more passionately. Thank you that you're right and we are wrong. Help us to acknowledge that truth and enjoy the gift of life that we have now presently. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.